In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We've had this morning this wonderful collect that in some ways I draw upon every week. It's one of the newest collects we've had. I think it was just uh, assembled in the last 15 or 20 years, and yet it is using texts older than that found in any of the collects. They were set to paper by St. Augustine in his uh, 13 confessions in the years 397 to 400. So prayer by St. Augustine, and part of that great outpouring from the heart, the first autobiography in the modern sense ever written from that extraordinary brother in Christ. Someone founded in it uh, the classical outlines of a collect we won't go into all the technology of that, but the message is constant. God made us to love him, and our hearts will not settle onto or into anything or anyone else but God. Try as we might, and try we do with all our might to settle our hearts on anything or anyone but God. So one thing we are asked to love is God, we say this every week, to love. To love God, oh yes, and God himself says, and to love neighbor. The summary of the law as Jesus gathers it together. We can't argue with him. The whole thing there, he says. Now, Luther does Jesus perhaps one better uh, and says that if you love your neighbor, it is as good as loving God, that that indeed is what is asked of us this side of glory. Well, I think we'll play with that. We're going into Luther's year in 2017. We're gonna cut him some space here. So how do we love our neighbor? We can think nice thoughts. We can smile and wave across the fence or the parking lot. Yes, uh, but no. Everything that we do and that we are called to do it by Christ and for Christ and for our neighbor we do, therefore, in love, or not. But everything we do in love is love. And whether it's economics or politics or ergonomics, psychology or theology or musicology, everything that we do for one another is an act of love. That's why our vocation is so critical. That is how we show love of neighbor. And that the whole world works as one economic web is an act of love. We love our neighbor, we love our neighborhood, we love the planet. It's all part of this living out of this command, so it compasses rather a lot. Well, the work of the day then is to work this collect, this command, the work of every day into the text for that day. And the text for today is a parable, and that's great, a very rich one, so we won't extract everything that can be mined from this parable, uh, but what makes up for that it is a very difficult parable to work with, considered the hardest parable uh, upon which to preach, so that will uh, perhaps limit what we extract, after all, at least in the hands of the preacher here. Looking quickly at the text, it seems to reside in the domain of economics. It's about oikos, the household, and nomos, the law of the household. And the manager or the steward, as we 
call him, uh, we call a manager in today's translation, is the one who is charged with economics, keeping the master's household business working smoothly. As well as economics, we are also looking at the domain of trust, pistis, which is faith, we call it, but trust better. What can you believe? Who can you depend on to do what they say, etc., etc.? Very timely consideration. And that of justice, dikaios, what is mine? What do I have coming to me? And how do I get what I have coming to me? Trust and justice then. Now, distrust is in the air. The people of this parable breathe. We should feel right at home here. The steward is accused of being untrustworthy, of squandering the substance of the one who he was sworn to serve and protect through his faithful administration. And in a blatant act of self-preservation, when he is caught, he acts in such a way that purely uh, justifies the accusation he received. He willfully writes off the sums that are apparently justly owed to his patron so that he, the steward, can continue to take the pickings uh, from his patron's treasure and by doing so enjoy the patronage of those who were in his patron's debt. Like I say, this may be the way they play the game in the city or on Wall Street, unless you get caught. And what's interesting about the parable is the way Jesus himself seems to stand back and applaud the audacity of this guy. He's saying, hey, you get away with it, that's fine. That's how you work with the world. I quote, the master commended the unjust manager for his worldly wisdom. That's the word that's used here for shrewdness, for nasus, worldly wisdom. For the sons of this world are more worldly wise in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unjustified wealth, ill-gotten gains, mammon, which is an Aramaic word for a worldly wealth or almost filthy lucre, if you like. It's very tainted in that sense. So I have always read this story with a kind of inner twinge, justice-wise. I've read it as if the rich man was in the oil business and in the grain business. He was dealing with these commodities and he was owed money from the purchases of the goods that he had sold, money or oil. Whether he was the producer or middleman didn't really matter. What mattered is that he'd given the goods and now he was owed the money. It was a simple matter of justice. You get what's yours, what is owed to you fair and squares. And in this, the parable seems to show the master as one who has been doubly wronged by his steward both times. And it leaves us with a bad taste. Now, N.T. Wright proposes, I think brilliantly, that the way the audience of Jesus' time would have read this parable, they would have seen through something that we see is very opaque. This man was not into oil and grain. The master was in the money business. He was trading in money, which meant that he was also in the monkey business in Judea, 
because the Bible explicitly forbids the children of Israel to buy and sell money. That is, the Old Testament, and it does, look it up, explicitly forbids that money will be lent for interest to one another of the children of Israel. You could borrow it, money, and you were free to lend it for free. You just couldn't charge interest. And as there was never much interest in Israel then or in anywhere now in doing business that way, no matter what the Bible said, enterprising Israelites could get around those strictures by converting their cash into goods and running their money business that way. So rates for oil were high, the parable tells us, 50%. Rates for grain were low, a mere 20%. Either way, it amounted to extortion. And when the steward knocks down the bill, what he is saying to these debtors is, just pay back the principal, forget the interest. And in doing this, what he is doing, according to the Bible, is righting a wrong at his master's expense and for his master's benefit. The debt is forgiven. The unjust, ill-gotten gain is forgone. Master, in this story, doesn't come out very well either. And what the steward is doing is actually restoring him. Using two wrongs to make a right, yes, honor among Thieves, honor among thieves may be, but justice in the end has been done. And all the master can do is applaud. If he decides to press the issue, he will be undone. Now, it's the way the world works. Jesus is saying, go with the flow, work with it. Still leaves me a little unsettled. Do you really need the second person of the Trinity to tell us what we already know by opening the financial page of our newspaper to instruct us on how we understand worldly wealth must be managed? You can't lend money without getting interest. It's inconceivable. And if this is the wisdom that he's dispersing, we might do better off turning to Proverbs, is beginning, in fact, to look very much like a parable after all. Now, I'm not an economics major. I took a few courses in economics. They said, fine, maybe you don't want to push this as your major. The secrets of micro and macroeconomics are safe with me. And so as to the feasibility of the broader biblical economic model, I can only say I don't know. As far as I know, it has never been tried. Biblical economics has never even been attempted. Israel had her own ideas on borrowing and lending and took that and ran with it. And everyone else in pursuit and God was not pleased. What's part of that biblical package? Yeah, interest-free loans. Jubilee years in which after every seventh year, all your debts are wiped out. You went into foreclosure. After seven years, you got your property back. No money, no charge. It's back. You get to start again. The clock is reset, right? Debt forgiveness, big time. Go through the Old Testament. You'll find it very, very specifically set forward. How many people tried it? Not many, which gets Israel into a lot of trouble in the pages of scripture. But can we blame them? 
It all seems like an impossibility to us as well. We cannot get our heads around it. We cannot get away from it. But as long as the texts stand, we cannot really let ourselves get away with it either. We're stuck with what the text says. We want to go running the great world system as we understand it, business as usual, because if we don't, we believe the whole world will literally fall apart. Now, this is where things get interesting, and this is where biblical truth usually is hidden. We live our world fighting things out between two sides who disagree, and we go back and forth between one side and the other. And we're supposed to side with one side or the other because that's where the Bible's truths are hidden. No, 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 no. It seems again and again that when the Bible is really pushing God's truth, it's actually at a place where we all agree a place where we as a culture agree so fundamentally that we simply take it for granted. And if you lift that piece of the ground up on which we're standing and say, no, no, this is not necessary, this is completely contingent, then the entire universe falls apart. That's where the truth is found, where we take something for granted so profoundly we don't even know we take it for, we don't even know it exists and we don't believe there's an alternative. The world's way in terms of economics is a sorry business. It's a beaten path, deeply rutted, and it's impossible not to get stuck in its grooves. It's not just the way we think that things are best run, it's the only way we can imagine. And we expect even God to accommodate his expectations to our experience, to our notion of reality such as it is. Interest-free loans, you've got to be kidding. We're not even going to consider it. Getting pretty close, mind you, but we're not going to consider it. Now, God has us in his economic system, whether we like it or not. We are the stewards here. He leaves us in charge of his riches, this fragile, beautiful planet. We are the stewards, and we are the ones who have scattered the substance. That's the language of this parable, just the same language of the one in 15, the prodigal son. He runs away, he disperses, diabolos, he scatters his master's substance. Well, we're that person. Scattered the substance of the four winds, squandered our inheritance, trashed this planet, kept the best of what was left for ourselves, my generation, bad news, and as for our children, we'll hope for the best. God knows, I believe, all too well how we might restore things if we would listen. But history shows that his economic plan for planet Earth will not be attempted, let alone adopted whole. Bits of pieces of it, rather, will be plundered and used to justify whatever people's own idols, wherever they are set up in the marketplace, May she stay pure and free as if she ever was, or in the shadowy halls of big government, whichever way you choose, those are our idols, and we try to co-opt Jesus to prop us up. We look at Jesus' own moral manifesto, the way we should live, the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, we haven't done much better than that. Snatches of it find their way into a middle-class morality, which is a combination of keeping up appearances, keeping up with the Joneses, and minding other people's business rather than one's own. And the two approaches go together very well. 
made in heaven, you might say, well, made somewhere else. And we look down the road and we say, indeed, come, Lord Jesus, come and clear out this mess. And he says, I told you how you can do it if you believe me. Well, very encouraging word today. <laughs> but I'll leave you with a little word of encouragement. And it's in this text and it's in the principle of the mustard seed. It's found in all the parables. It's found in this one here when Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. If you can find the way to be faithful with the little things, the big things will come along. What do we used to say? Take care of the pence. The pounds will take care of themselves. Small things are significant. The fact is validated by even a fleeting acquaintance with history or church history, especially that this principle seems to be Jesus the King's preferred option for effective change. Grassroots from the ground up, not the top down. And even the tiniest things can have eternal consequences. So, let us seek to meet Jesus, the Lord of our lives, starting with our souls. Because if it doesn't happen in the soul, it will not happen anywhere else. Then our bodies, then the body politic, and in that order. It gives us room to maneuver in the bigger sphere and to make a clear difference in the spheres where our influence is stronger. And I invite us all to work this year as we open ourselves as creatures of habit to be more and more rehabituated, if you like, to this oikon, this oikos, this household which we are to gather in this our habitus, if you like, more reoriented and redisposed and re-predisposed to hear our master's voice and obey him when he calls us in the moment. We've got to somehow get those ruts that we have worn down and fill them in with gravel and start to try to take our wagons on the paths that Jesus has invited us. We can do it at first in the little things. For life is lived in the little things and we have no idea of the eternal consequences of the smallest acts of obedience in the everyday. Amen.